I'm your host, William Tapley. Also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here. Just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, September 10th, 2012. I hope you had a great weekend. And I hope that you are enjoying the joys of serving your neighbor in your ordinary vocations. We'll talk about that today. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and so every episode of Fighting for the Faith, we just slow things down, stop, listen, open up our Bible, compare What's going on uh, to what what or what people are saying to what God's word says in context? The idea here is this: Is your pastor basically throwing you back on yourself, your good works, the things you've got to do in order to please God, or is he proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for our sins and teaching the biblical story of what God has done for us? to rescue, save, redeem, all of those things for us and for our salvation. See, that's the idea. If he's not preaching Christ, well, then he's doing something different. And unfortunately, nowadays, we've got people who are, <clears throat> are doing things in the pulpit that are also women. That should not be. God has forbidden such things. Now, I know that sounds politically incorrect and out of step with the times, but who said the times get to determine what's true or not, or not true? The answer is they don't. So, all right. Yeah, I'm looking at my time here. <laughs> this program just started, Rosebro. Yeah, I, I know. I'm looking at the time going, whew, okay, I've got, I've got some major stuff I need to get into today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. By the way, today's um, episode, <clears throat> the theme is allegory. <laughs> 
I don't know. Really. Today's episode of Fighting for the Faith is brought to you by the letter Z, the number three, and the word allegory. So just, just to let you all know that, we're going to be talking about allegory. Now, from time to time, it's a valid tool when you're um, when you're proclaiming the truth, okay, it is to be used in small portions and not to be overdone. Uh, otherwise, you come up with some pretty silly absurdities, okay. And to kind of give you an example of what it is we're going to be doing uh, today, we're going to be looking at um, well. <sighs> Three things, three things that, that, well, bad allegory. We're going to start with Patricia King, and then we're going to go to Joyce Meyer. And Joyce Meyer and Patricia King are dealing with the same biblical text, the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. And you'll notice that in both instances, what's happening is that they're allegorizing the text, basically taking different elements of the text and then turning it into a symbol. Okay, let me give you a bad example of that. Um, Let's say, let's take the story of Noah. Okay, Noah, you know, the ark, the animals, and all, you know, the flood, that, that story. Now, if you were a modernist liberal denying the uh, the possibility of the miraculous, then automatically your worldview excludes you from understanding what this text is really all about to begin with. Now, if you are a modernist liberal and you are also a pastor, then what's going to happen is is that you're going to get up on the into the pulpit on a Sunday morning, and you're going to engage in allegorical gymnastics. Uh, you know, there, there's all kinds of weird contortions that you're going to get into in order to avoid preaching the text as if it's historical and for real, okay? And so what a modernist liberal would do is they they would take the text and they would say something to the effect of, you know, this is a wonderful story that shows us that by faith we can float above the problems of the world. And so what they do is they basically they take the boat and allegorize it into the good thoughts that you need to have. They take the flood itself and all the destruction that's going on and allegorize it and turn it into, you know, basically a symbol of, of all of the troubles and trials of this life. And if, and see, and see God comes around and he inspires you to build a boat in order to float above all the problems of the world. <laughs> so there you go. That's, that's terrible. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really bad way to read the scripture. And when you do that, you miss the whole point of the of the biblical text. And so it's like, whoa. Okay, so that's what you're talking about. Right. So what we're going to do today, we've got three examples of, of allegory that are just no bueno. Okay, and uh, I'm going to kind of build up to it. So we'll start with Tr- Patricia King. We will move our way to Joyce Meyer, and both of them are dealing with the same text of Scripture, which is fascinating because now you can kind of pit Patricia King against Joyce Meyer and say, well, which allegori- allegorizing is uh, is correct? And then we'll switch gears and get to uh, Stephen Furtick. I, I want to talk today about the concept in the book Greater regarding burning your plows, okay? And I will demonstrate to you how this – if you go with his approach to narcissizing the biblical text – by the way, if you're not familiar with that term, narcissizing, it's a combination of two words, narcissistic and eisegesis. So you narcissize, you – you know, so narcissistic eisegesis, and you're, you know, I forget the, you know, the grammar portion of it. Stick the word, you come up with narcissesis, and then the verb form of it is to narcissite, and you get what I'm saying. Anyway, so what he's doing is, is he's engaging in a form of uh, allegorizing 
on a narcissistic level, but which is really a lot of what the people do. Now, what's weird, what's really fascinating to me is that um, historically – it's the people who've bought into the Socinian heresy. If you're not sure what the Socinian heresy is, go back through the archives of Fighting for the Faith to the series that we did uh, with Phil Johnson, uh, formerly of the Pyromaniacs blog. And uh, he did a, a, a survey of uh, the heresies, uh, Christian heresies, you know, historical Christian heresies. Socinian heresy is one of them. Uh, the Socinian heresy is basically radical skepticism. You, you know, they, they take the form of modernist liberals and nowadays postmodern liberals too. And so uh, normally – this allegorizing of the biblical text is one of the things that people who've bought into the Socinian heresy have been known for because fundamentally their worldview excludes them from the miraculous. But now we've got a weird thing going on today, and that is, is that we've got so-called conservative um, you know, uh, preachers and teachers, those who would say that they believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, they believe in verbal plenary inspiration, and, and yet <clears throat> their handling of the biblical text, what they're preaching is v very much akin to what we would hear from modernist liberals. It's turning the Bible into Aesop's fables, and and like totally missing the whole point of the text. I mean, what's the, what, let me ask you just a tough question. What is the point in believing in verbal plenary inspiration, that the Bible is the inerrant inspired word of God, that it is, uh, that, you know, that the miracles took place in, you know, in the Bible, in history. What's the point in believing all of that if when you get into the pulpit or on the stage nowadays um, to proclaim the word of God, you basically teach the text in such a way that it doesn't matter whether or not those events really truly took place in history. And that's what happens when you allegorize the biblical text, by the way. All right, so let's, I'm looking at my time here. I, I think I should just dive right into it. We should just get into the program proper. And so to start off our uh, program today on allegorization, here is our uh, music for Patricia King. Are you feeling all tied up? Yeah, you know, just like you can't get anywhere. Well, here's Patricia King to help you with this particular problem. Feeling all tied up because I feel that, that many of you are. You're feeling like, oh, I feel stuck. I feel tied up. I feel like I'm not free. I feel like I can't move. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know who I am. You know, and you're just feeling kind of all wrapped up. But feeling all wrapped up. I don't even know what she's. I've never had this feeling before. That is not who you are. The well, that's good news. Whew. <laughs> yeah. Boy, I'm, I'm glad to know that if I ever have that feeling come on me that I'm all tied up, that it's not who I am. <laughs> Weird. Word of God says that you're a free being in Christ, and it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And so I'm going to make some decrees over you today. Oh, please don't. Oh, please don't. That'll bring you into freedom, and we're going to loose you from your grave clothes. And I want... <laughs> <laughs> You're going to do what? <laughs> You're going to release me from my grave clothes. <laughs> what are you talking about? Um, 
Hang on a second here. I'm looking. Um, nope. I, well, as far as I can tell, I'm not wearing any grave clothes. Unless, you're, of course, you're talking about some kind of allegorical grave clothes. Of which I would basically ask the question, really, seriously? Um, you are going to release me from my grave clothes. Listen. To use um, uh, John chapter 11 as a text. And it's the story of Lazarus who is dead and he got raised from the dead. But when he got raised from the dead, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Yeah. Um, and everybody was watching. Lazarus did come forth from the dead. He came forth breathing, but he was a breathing man now, but all tied up. He was... <laughs> No, no, no. I, I, you know, here, you know, I prepared the program, you know, I previewed this ahead of time and yet just the gravity of the ludicrousness of what it is that she is saying has hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, Patricia, you're really going to reach into John chapter 11, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And you're going to allegorize it so that now it's, it's an application to me in a time when I might feel psychologically tied up. Oh no. By the way, the reason why um, Lazarus was all tied up. Are you ready? Um, It's (laughs) here's, here's the depth of this particular thing. Are you ready? Okay, he died, and what they did with bodies back then is, well, you'll notice that he was placed in an above-ground tomb, and that there was a stone in front of his um, his tomb, okay? This is pretty simple. Basically, during the Second Temple period, when they were building the temple, you know, they were still building the temple, first century. By the way, the temple was, uh, Herod's temple was never complete. Um, they, they, the construction was still going on at the time when it was in 70 AD rolled around, just to let you all know. I mean, it, uh, you know, it was a long building project. And at the time Jesus was alive, they were still, that was still going on. Okay. Anyway, t- the, the point is during that period of time, uh, what they would do, um, is that they would put somebody in an above ground tomb after their death, they would, Prepare the body with spices and oils, okay? Um, this was to help, you know, to, to basically treat the, pro- uh, the body properly. They would wrap it up, okay? And then what they would do is they would put it into a tomb, roll a stone in front of it, and here's the goal. It would sit in there for basically a year, Okay. And during that year, it would go from being a body to being a skeleton, okay? Above-ground decomposition going on here, okay? After a year, they would take the bones, you know, at that point, stick them into a bone box. It's called an ossuary, and, you know, and, and, you know, that's the idea, Okay, and several people, families would fit into an ossuary, and so the idea that was the way they handled the dead back then. So, you want to know why Lazarus was tied up? Because he was dead. Okay, Jesus in John chapter 11 tells him, Lazarus, come out. He comes out, and you know what? He's still wrapped up in his grave clothes, and you know why? Because 
he was dead and now he's alive. And so the idea here is, is that we've, we've got to take care of this now living human being who finds himself in the awkward position of having been dead and still wrapped up in grave clothes. Yeah, got it. I mean, let me put it this way. Okay. If Jesus's ministry were today, okay. If Jesus's ministry were today, and let's say that this happened, um, like at a funeral. Okay. So Jesus, because here's the deal three days after someone's dead, there's the chances are the funeral hasn't taken place. Um, and you know, and you know, you, you understand what I'm saying. So let's pretend that Jesus shows up graveside just as they were getting, they're getting ready to lower the casket into the ground in modern day. Okay. And, uh, and the person who died is, is, is a man named Lazarus. Okay. We'll just kind of use this ideas. Okay. So what happens is J- Jesus shows up at the ceremony where they're getting ready to put the casket into the ground. And he says to the casket, Lazarus come out, Right. Do you know what would happen? Lazarus would come out and he'd be wearing a suit. I mean, isn't that what they bury you in nowadays? I mean, I, I'm really excited because I've got my grave clothes hanging up in my closet. <laughs> what a fine looking set of grave clothes that is too. But so the idea here is, is that if it were to happen today, he would come out in a suit. If it were to, because it happened in the first century in Judea, he comes out wrapped up in in grave clothes, strips of linen. You get what I'm saying here? So there's there's no allegorical point to be made here. And this is not an application for your life. I mean, this is like an adventure in missing the entire point of the text. It's all bound up by what was called grave clothes. And the Lord said to those standing around him, uh, untie him. And let him go. And so uh, I'll just uh, read it uh, to you out of John four, uh, John 11, verse 42, or 43. It says, And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And you know, some of you right now, you just need to speak to yourself with a loud voice and break this like little swirl that's been going on and that kind of bondage where you feel stuck. Just yell at yourself. Look in the mirror and say, Lazarus! Come forth in Jesus' name, you know. Like, that's going to do anything. Oh, man. But talk about missing the whole point. Okay, I got to do this now because I'm like incensed at at her complete mangling of this particular text. If if you got your Bible, um, whip it out. Open it up to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. The Gospel of John, chapter 11. Jesus, by the way, is journeying now to Jerusalem with the the very uh, intention of dying on the cross for our sins. Okay? This is a fantastic text, by the way. This is this is a great Christological text. In fact, in the Greek, there's something going on here that uh, I'm probably going to mess up in in telling. But anyway, let me let me explain what's going on here. Uh, John chapter eleven verse one. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the uh, uh, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Okay, it was Mary who was the one who anointed uh, with ointment and wiped Jesus' feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, for it is, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Stop. Okay? Verse 4. What's the whole point of the Lazarus story? Are you ready? So that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
That's the point of this text. Jesus himself announces ahead of time, before the events take place, what this is going to, what the result's going to be, and why all of this is going to go down the way it's going to go down. Why? For the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So, what's this? Who is the story about? <laughs> well, number one, it's not about you. Yeah, I hate to break it to you. I know that might hurt your feelings, but the story isn't about you. It's not. Um, you're not mentioned anywhere in this story. Um, you're not old enough to have been around, you know, for this. So you're not in here. Okay, so the story isn't about you. This story is about Jesus. This story is for the glory of Jesus. That's what. That's who and what the story is for. Got it? Okay, now, moving along. So now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and, and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It doesn't make any sense, but Jesus knows what he's doing, right? So then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're, you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I will go and awaken him. Now, Jesus is the only way person that I know of that gets the right to talk about death in such, I mean, I mean, that almost seems like, he, you know, it's, this is like just such a light treatment of death. He's fallen asleep. No, he stopped breathing, Jesus. You know, you understand what I'm saying. But here he says he's fallen asleep. Okay. Um, uh, so the disciples said, well, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. <laughs> so now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant t uh, taking rest in sleep. By the way, this is great stuff here. Okay. Notice how Jesus treats death no big deal no big it's just sleeping and you're going well it's a big deal to me i understand that jesus experienced it and he conquered it okay he has a right to uh to take a view and you you might want to adopt his view you understand what i'm saying so then he said to them plainly listen lazarus has died and for your sake i'm glad that i was not there so that you may believe but let us go to him so thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, I know, let us also go so that we may die with him. Notice Thomas here is looking for some deep spiritual meaning. Some al He's allegorizing the text, the words of Jesus in some way that, you know, and it's like Jesus just brushes him off, right? So now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Notice this is probably the reason why Jesus has taken death so lightly. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. 
I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. <laughs> Good stuff, okay? So, I mean, here we've got a confession. And this is this is deep stuff. This is radically deep. She confesses that Jesus is the Messiah and the and and God himself. Okay? She believes. Oh, <laughs> you bet your bippy she believes. Okay? Now, <clears throat> when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, different person, completely different emotions going on here. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? Now, I'm going to pause here for a second, okay? The, the I, I have not found an English translation that quite gets what's going on in the Greek in this passage. Jesus being deeply moved, when you read it in the Greek, it's as almost as if he's angry, okay? And you, you have to kind of search around and go, okay, what is he angry at? Because the way, the impact in the Greek is way stronger than what's going on in the English, okay? Deeply moved is like an understatement, Okay. And the best commentators that I've seen on this, current commentators as well as ancient, have identified that Jesus here is more than likely really, really upset at the effects and the ravages that sin has taken on his creation and his people whom he created and he loves. Okay? Jesus here is deeply, deeply, deeply moved and angry. And the impact of the question is, where have you laid him? Let me give you kind of a metaphor here that will, that at least an illustration that will kind of get you the idea of what's going on here. This is a, this is Jesus is, you know, getting, he's looking for a lion who's killed a small boy. He's going to go find that lion and he's going to tear it in half. Okay, that's kind of the impact of what's going on here. So when Jesus says, where have you laid him? He is at this point really ready to, you know, to kick some tail end and take names. Okay, and death and the devil are about ready to have their, their you know, basically heads knocked off. I mean, that's kind of the impact of what's going on there in the Greek. It doesn't really come across in the English. And personally, I haven't found a way to bring it across in the English except for to take the time to kind of unpack it for you and, and you know, point you to it. It, it. This is another great reason, by the way, that any serious Bible student needs to read the the New Testament in the original languages. It's, I mean, talk about high definition. I mean, it, it's, it, it really, it's the difference between you know, 1958, black and white and high def. That's the difference. Okay. You, you catch so much more and those nuances make a difference. So Jesus says, where have you laid him? So they said to him, Lord, come and see. 
and Jesus wept. I mean, two words, two words. It says Jesus wept. Stop and think about it for a minute. Weeping is not something that takes up two words. Weeping is one of those things when you are around it or it's happening to you or happening to a loved one when they are weeping, you are left speechless. There are no words that you can offer. The only thing you can do is give a wide berth. Here, Jesus weeps, weeps over the death of his friend, weeps over the ravages of this, that this death has on Martha and Mary, weeps at the whole situation. He is moved to the point of absolute slobbery weeping. Our God cares for us deeply. He truly does. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Great question. I mean, all of this is going on, right? Okay? The way the story is unfolding, those who were there and experiencing all of this, they don't know what's going to happen next. They don't know what's going to happen next. So then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it. Jesus, again, very commanding, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of of God. So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you have sent me. Right. So when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. See, that's the idea here. The unbind him, the command to unbind him and let him go. Jesus is still in this. He's... Take kick and tail and take in names, and he's got he's going to take the head off of the devil. He's going to take the head off of death itself. He's just going to he's going to basically steal the prey of death. And so this unbind him, let him go, is really in step with what's going on here in in the text. You can see it clear in the Greek, clear as day. Okay, and so I mean it's you know. <sighs> Anyway, that's really what's going on. Now watch the reaction, okay? All of this was for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified, right? Now, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. You could just we have never heard of anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. Unbelievable. This guy has the gumption to command people to be raised from the dead. 
This wasn't done in an upper room. This wasn't done in private. This was, in fact, I, I think back to the uh, the uh, couple of resurrection stories uh, from the Old Testament. And the one thing that is uh, the, the, that they have in common is, is that the resurrection takes place privately. You know, it's not in front of a crowd or anything like that. But Jesus literally rolls up his sleeves like he's going to knock the head off of death itself and literally take out of the jaws of death one of its victims whom death has had for four days, commands him to be unbound and to let go, be let go, okay? And you, and you could just see what's going on, right? Jesus is glorified. And what's the result? They believe in him. They believe in him. Truly, this man is the Son of God. Truly, this man is the Messiah. They believed in him. And this is what the will of the Father is. It's the Father's will that you believe in the one whom he has sent. As John says in his gospel, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. Even though you die, yet shall you live. That's what's going on in this text. Now, there's a little bit more, okay? They believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Did they repent? No. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. (laughs) Whose side do you think they're working for? They don't want people to believe in Jesus, yet he just commanded somebody to be rate to, to come back to life. And rather than believe, they want to stop people from believing in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He was right. Okay. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. And by the way, that, that's all part of the glory of God. What's Jesus' greatest moment his sufferings and death on the cross. He is glorified when the Son of Man is lifted up, lifted up, declared to be the King of the Jews, bleeding and dying in your place and mine, suffering the punishment for our sins on the cross. This is for the glory of God, right? So all of this, both the good result in the believing and in the result where their people were determined to put him to death. All of that is for the glory of God. That's what this text is about. It's about Jesus. It's about the glory of Jesus. And this story calls to you and says, will you believe in the one whom the Father has sent and give glory to your King of kings and Lord of lords who on the last day will command you and your moldering carcass to come forth from the grave. Doesn't matter if your bo- if your body is sitting in a in a graveyard 6 feet under or lying at the very bottom of the deepest depths of the ocean in the Mariachi trench. Just a little joke. But do you understand what I'm saying? On the last day, Jesus will command you to rise. 
and you will. Because he sees death as nothing more than sleep. That's what this text is about. Anyway, so we got Patricia King now completely off topic. Completely off topic. But now let's go. Call those things that are dead into life. You know, call those things that feel all bound up into life. And so um, you have the power to do that in the name of Jesus. This is the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And that's what Jesus wants to do for you today. Why? Because you're not called to be bound. You're not called to be all tied up. You know, sometimes it's legalistic mindsets that tie you up and, you know, it says you can't do this and you can't do that. No, she's completely missed the whole point of the text. I was just sharing with someone recently as we were looking at some legal issues and some administrative laws that have been laid out. I said, listen, it always has to work this way. The law or administration has to serve the vision and not the other way around. Huh? You know, when you look at different um, uh, revivals in church history, you will find that every revival started with the freedom of the movement of the Spirit of God. started with re- revival. Every denomination started with revival. But then it started to take shape and form, and the control of the law and administration and that started coming into it. And it, What does this have to, store, to do with the story of Lazarus? Administration and law is good. The law is good. Administration is good, but only if it serves the vision. When it starts to control a vision, then you get all tied up and you can't do anything. And so every revival that that started moves of God ended up in institutionalized denominationalism that are that are dead that which was life turned out to be dead how are you finding this from this text it should be the other way around that which is dead should come into life and so God does not want you tied up what is it that is tying you up is it sin in your life if so get rid of the sin it's not worth yeah it's false prophetesses like you worth being tied up over a passion for sin it'll just it'll just take you down into a gutter but you can deal with that easily you repent you turn away from the sin you ask Jesus to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and he will do that and then you can move on in righteousness is it controlling elements around you you have power over that you're the head and not the tail you're above and not beneath and Uh, notice all of a sudden I'm the subject of this text and I'm not you're not I'm not this is what allegorization does is it basically hijacks the text and texts that are about Jesus and for his glory and end up being about you and apparently for your glory. You can rise up and say, I'm going to obey my God. I'm going to be free. You know, it, it could be that mindsets that are in you are keeping you all tied up because you think, oh, I'm just no good. Oh, I'm rejected. Oh, I'm poor. Oh, I'm this. Oh, I'm that. And those mindsets will suck into you the actual manifestation of what you're believing. Uh-huh. And so let's deal with those things and get you untied. Oh, no. And so I just want to unwrap you right now. Yeah, for, feel free. Um, you know, one of the things I love to do is is, is coach people into freedom. Uh-huh. And so I decree over you that you're coming out of your grave clothes. We're going to see them all unwrap. God's going to send you coaches. He's going to send you mentors to come alongside of you and to help you, to untie you, and to let you go. Oh, how wonderful. What a great 
word of nonsense. Anyway, <clears throat> by the way, um, Joyce Meyer from the September 8th edition of uh, the Christian Post. You can find this at ChristianPost.com. Um, the name of this, the, uh, the headline reads, by the way, Roll Away Your Own Stone. <laughs> Listen to what Joyce Meyer does with the John 11 text. <clears throat> Joyce Meyer writes, by the way, she's a, now a guest columnist at the Christian Post. I don't know if you've been hanging out with Jesus long enough to know this, but he is predictably unpredictable. He likes to change things up. In fact, I don't think he ever healed people the same way twice in the Bible. (laughs) Boy, that Jesus is just chock full of creativity, isn't he? Anyway, she continues. She says, just think about some of the strange things Jesus told people to do. When there was no more wine left at a wedding, he told the servants to fill up jars with water and then serve it to the master of the banquet as though it were wine. Well, actually, it he it was changed into wine. It wasn't it wasn't as if it was wine. It yeah. Anyway, so when a blind man came to him for healing, Jesus spit in the dirt, made a mud cake, and said, "Here, rub this on your eyes, and then go wash in the pool." Can you imagine? And uh, and any one of them could have said, "I'm sorry, Jesus, that sounds ridiculous, and I don't think it's gonna work, and I'd just rather not have people making fun of me." Thank you. But they didn't question Jesus. They did what he asked them to do, and they got their miracle. See, you want your miracle too. All you got to do is do what Jesus is asking you to do. See, Jesus was looking for faith. All of God's children have faith. The question is, are we willing to do what he tells us right away, or are we going to analyze every little thing he asks us to do? So, next section, by the way, is called Learning from Lazarus' Story. Now, let's take a look at John 11. It's the chapter where Jesus raises his friend from the dead. Uh, The Bible says that Jesus was deeply disquieted when he approached Lazarus' tomb. He was visibly disturbed. And Martha, Lazarus' sister, came out to meet him and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Think for a moment how Jesus must have felt. He knows what has happened and has come to fix the problem, but one really understands what, uh, no one understand, really understands what he's capable of doing. He's surrounded by unbelief. And in the midst of the confusion, Jesus says to the people, take away the stone. It, isn't it interesting that Jesus was getting ready to raise a man from the dead, but he drew a line at rolling away the stone. He wanted them to move it. I bet it looked heavy. So, so many times when God asks us to do something, we look at the situation and say, I'm not like you, Jesus. There's no way I can do that. Maybe you need to uh, forgive people who have hurt you. Maybe you're asking God for a new house and he's telling you to clean up up the one you got. Maybe you're waiting for a debt reduction miracle and you're still paying with credit cards everywhere you go. Many of us waste years saying, I can't do it, God, it's just too hard. But that's just a web of deception that Satan spins. And when you know the character of God, you know he's not going to give one of his children something to do that they cannot do. So the minute you take a step of faith to do what God asked you to do, all of a sudden the divine strength and ability hooks up with you. And the anointing makes you strong. And something you thought you could never do isn't much of an issue anymore. So a lot of times we think we've been faithful in obedient and nothing's changed well it will the timing may not be right but there might, <laughs> might be uh, other things god wants to do before you get your final breakthrough but you have to you you ha- you don't have to be upset until god solves your problem so we don't have faith so that we can never have a problem we have faith so that we can have a problem and and, and not let it have us mm-hmm. so apparently in joyce meyer's reading of john 11 you see the obedience was when Jesus said, roll away the stone. See, Jesus was looking for faith and obedience, and it, and so he drew the line. He drew the line at you know rolling away the stone. He wouldn't do that, but because they obeyed him, the, they got their miracle. 
Yeah, the problem is, is that when you read John chapter 11, before anybody did anything, um, as far as rolling away any stones were concerned, Jesus already telegraphed his punch. He let his disciples know that Lazarus, this Lazarus thing wasn't going to result in death and that the whole thing was to happen for the glory of the Son of God. Jesus intended to heal him no matter what. So the rolling away of the stone... That's that's kind of an you know pointing at pointing to that and say oh there's the there's the obedience Jesus was looking for nothing at all says that it's just a minor point in the telling of the historical account and yet she's attaching some kind of weird allegorical allegorical significance to it and see Jesus wants to you know raise up your dead relationships raise your finances from the dead and stuff like that but you've got to roll away the stone. It's not what this text is about at all. And both in both instances, they're taking Patricia King and uh, Joyce Meyer, they're allegorizing the text and making it say something it doesn't say. And by doing so, it's avoiding very carefully the, what the text is really all about. And that's not just a what, but a who. And the who is Jesus and not you. All right, we're up on our first break. When we come back, we got a Stephen Furtick update. Don't want to miss that. Hour number two, by the way, it's going to be a, a um, divisive sermon on unity. You know, weird thing. You don't want to miss that either. Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Have you seen his bank account? It's bigger than yours, I'll bet. 
I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net, situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could, well, really disrupt your idolatry because we take your sacred cows and slaughter them here, mercilessly too. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 
Time for a Stephen Furtick update. plows in your life? Did you, you understand that if, when we read the story of Elisha, the way Stephen Furtick tells it in the book Greater, he makes a big point. You know, Elisha did some important things. He burned his plows. He commanded ditches to be dug. So have you burned your plows? Have you dug ditches? Is this any way to read the Bible? Anyway, they ain't got another kill of music here. Bum, 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 bum. Anyway, so is this any way to read your Bible? The answer is no. This is no way to read your Bible. Let me give you an example here. Okay, today's theme here is allegory. All right, so that's our that's our theme here. This is, this is a big problem. It's one of the major tools of twisting the Bible if you're going to twist the Bible narcissistically and read yourself into the text. Here, here's the idea. Okay. If you read Stephen Furtick's book, Greater, then what you, you discover is, is that he selectively picks, and not, he doesn't tell the whole story of, the, of Elisha, he selectively picks different vignette stories from the story of Elisha, and then he allegorizes them to fit into his grander narrative that God has a greater plan for your life. Uh, you know, see, you've got to ignite God's vision for your life, and so we can look at the story of Elisha and see... Elisha burned his plow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Elisha commanded ditches, ditches to be dug. Ah, so now we're going to allegorize it. And then I ask you the question, have you burned your plow? <laughs> I don't own a plow. Well, it's, it's just, well, the question is, what's your plow? <laughs> I don't have a plow. What are you talking about? Okay. And what ditches am I supposed to dig? Well, this is no way to read the Bible. No way to read the Bible at all. Let me give you some other examples. Okay, Jesus, okay, talks about John the Baptist, you know, John T. Baptist. John the Baptist, that does not, by the way, I just want to let you all know this. I'm absolutely convinced that John the Baptist was a Lutheran. Okay. <laughs> 
You're going, wait a second, Roseboro. He was a Baptist. Yeah, I know. That's, yeah, you're, you're using two different definitions there. Anyway, <clears throat> John the Baptist, okay? Jesus says that th- there was none greater born of women than uh, a woman than John the Baptist. Okay, so, I mean, in Jesus's view, and since he's the son of God, he kind of gets to weigh in on these things and his view gets to stand. Um, John the Baptist was like the premier umber, umber primo prophet okay even greater than elisha and elijah okay even though he you know and you gotta understand that he was the elijah that was prophesied in the old testament who would precede christ you know when he came anyway none greater born among women than john the baptist and well that being the case you know what we can look at the the life of john the baptist apparently and ignite god's vision for for your life okay so here's my question for you Have, have you um have you eaten your locusts yet Trust me, you, you. I mean, that's. I mean, isn't eating the locust uh, an instrumental part of the story of John the Baptist? Have you eaten your locusts yet? Have you eaten them with honey? You know. By the way, yeah, I find that my locusts are much easier to eat when I put honey on them. So, what's your honey? What's your locust? Have you eaten it yet? You're going. You're not making any sense. Right. I know I'm not making any sense because this is no way to read the Bible. So let me ask you: Have you lost your head yet? Where's where, where's your platter? You know, you want to ignite God's vision for your life? Where's your platter? Have you worn your camel's hair yet? I mean, if you want to, if you want to ignite your God's vision for your life the way John T. Baptist ignited his vision for you know God's vision for his life, then you got to eat your locusts with your honey, and you need to wear your camel's hair and lose your head. You can't do that. Well, I know. Neither can you burn your plow. You see what I'm saying here? Okay, let me let me give you another example. Okay, Hosea. Y'all familiar with the prophet Hosea? Now he's a minor prophet, and so I know that there's a lot of Christians out there, even listening to this program, who may have never read the minor prophets and read the story of Hosea. It's a fascinating, fascinating little little book there in the Bible that points us to Christ. But right off the bat, what do we learn that poor prophet Hosea was ordered to do by God? Well, God's vision for Hosea was for him to marry a prostitute. No joke. <laughs> Read the story. So let me ask you this. Have you married your prostitute yet? <laughs> You're going, I, what? Have I married my prostitute? Yeah, yeah. Have you? I mean, you, we got we got, you got to get busy. You need to be eating your locusts with your honey, put on some camel's hair, and, and marry your prostitute. And you're going, how do I marry my prostitute? What's my prostitute and how do I marry her? What are you talking about? Well, well, what about Ezekiel? Ezekiel was commanded by God to bake bread over dung. Have you baked your bread over your dung yet? You can't ignite God's vision for your life until you bake your bread over your dung after you eat your locusts and honey and have married your prostitute. So you got you got to get busy if you want to ignite God's vision for your life. And you're going... Wait a second. Something's really screwy here. And you go, well, that's my point. Okay. See, the story of Elisha is not told in scripture so that you can allegorize it and somehow backwards engineer the steps to igniting God's vision for your life. That's not what that text is about. In fact, the story of Elisha is about Jesus. True. Story of Hosea, it's about Jesus. And even John the Baptist makes it clear his story is about Jesus. Right? Right? So when you come across somebody like Stephen Furtick, who is selling a book, 
to teach you how to ignite God's vision for your life. And somehow he just discovered these principles for igniting God's vision in your life by allegorizing the story of Elisha and, and, and asking such silly questions as, have you burned your plows? Have you dug your ditches? I asked the question then, well, have you eaten your locust? Have you married your prostitute? You know, have you cooked your your bread over poop yet? Okay, because none of those stories are given to give you steps to ignite God's vision in your life as if somehow you can mirror the actions and, and historical events that took place in the lives of these prophets. But see, the one thing that we do have in common with them, now work with me for a second, is that we all hear the word of God. Now, I want to make a distinction. The prophets... They, the word of the Lord came to them very objectively. It wasn't a hunch inside of their heart. It wasn't some subjective feeling they had. Very objectively, the word of the Lord came to these prophets. They knew exactly who they were dealing with and what he was saying in, you know, in clear, unambiguous, certain terms. Okay. Now, the, now here's the, the common ground that we have. With them, God's word comes to us in as clear and unambiguous ways as it came to them. And how does it do that? In the written word of God. You want to hear God's voice? You want to know what God's will for you is? Open your Bible and read it. There you will have God's word instructing you and preparing you for every good work to which God would have you do. God's word, the written word, will do that. And it's objective, it's outside of you, and it is truly the word of God. Okay, And so think of it this way. The word of the Lord that came to Isaiah, it's right there in the Bible for you. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, it's right there in the scripture for you, for your building up edification, correcting, training, rebuking, tra- all of these things so that you are, are equipped for every good work. It's right there. Okay. Stop looking internally. God has not called you to be a prophet. And when you listen to these people, um, you listen to like Stephen Furtick and others. Okay, you know they're trying to get you to chase some subjective, internal, maybe not so no, you know, knowable, f- mystical, fuzzy, weird, hard to define thing that maybe God sort of kind of maybe laying on your heart or just to the left side of your 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 your. I don't know. Yet you, you understand? What it just no, the, listen. Cut that nonsense nonsense out. Go to the written word of God. You know what God, you will learn what God's will is for your life, what a good work is, and how you love and serve your neighbor in vocation. And you won't despise the things that God has given you to do. You will gladly receive them and love and serve your neighbor in your different vocations. Anyway, so without any further ado, that's kind of the, the, the preparation. Um, this is from uh, this past Sunday's, yesterday's um, sermon at Elevation Church, where Stephen Furtick um, is explaining people how to burn their plows. Because if you want to ignite God's vision for your life, well, you got to burn your plow. In fact, I'll go back to the very, 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 very beginning of this sermon so that you can hear how this sermon was pitched. And then we'll just go to the part where he's you know, telling people it's a kind of a three-point sermon. But the important part here, the meaty, the meaty thing is looking at the story of Elisha. Elisha burned his plow, so what's your plow that you got to burn? Well, 
Yeah, here's uh, one of the young kids at Elevation Church to explain what the sermon's about, and then I'll fast forward to where Stephen Furtick explains why you need to burn your plow. Thanks for joining us online today. The message you're about to hear is from the series Greater, based on the book by Pastor Stephen Furtick. And during the series, we're going to be taking a look at how to dream bigger, how to start smaller, and how to ignite God's vision for your life. So that's the setup, how to ignite God's vision for your life. And immediately the question comes up, what's that? How do you define such a thing? And well, they can't give you any specifics because God's unique vision for you is going to be not, not the same as God's unique vision for me or whatever. <sighs> this is a subjective chasing of the tail based upon, well, narcissistic eisegesis. Here's Stephen Furtick now to explain uh, how to um, burn your plow. And the Bible says in verse 21 that for a man who had spent his life behind the plow, Elisha does something remarkable and terrific. It says that he left them and went back and he took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. Now this in itself wasn't an unusual act. Um, It wasn't like that was cruel to the animals for Elisha to slaughter them. Animal sacrifice was so common in Elisha's day. Like it would be nothing for, for him to, to sacrifice the animals. His neighbors weren't calling PETA, you know, we've got a crazy man. He's killing his, he's killing his oxen. He's, he, he, he's on the loose. He's, he's out of control. So there's nothing abnormal about that necessarily. What gripped my heart is what he did next. And this is where I want to land my sermon today. It says that he, he burned the plowing equipment. To cook the meat. And he gave it to the people and they ate. I can understand killing the animals. There's some value in that. Everybody gets fed. But to take the instruments of your livelihood. And use them for fire. So you can grill this oxen. To me, that's irresponsible. And short-sighted. And a little bit over the top. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, if if God called you to quit your business, you wouldn't burn the building to the ground. You'd sell it to somebody and get something out of it, and you'd give half of it to the church. Say amen. (laughs) It's always safe to talk about what you would give to the church if you had it when you don't have it. It's when we talk about what you're doing with what you do have that, you know, gets a little more difficult. Three people stayed with that. (laughs) But my... My suspicion is that God didn't put this story in the Bible to teach us how to best steward farming equipment. It's a picture of surrender. It's a beautiful picture of surrender. We, uh, I don't know about that. And let me just challenge that concept real quick. He says that it's a picture of surrender. What's a parallel to this in the New Testament? Actually, there, there's, a, there's a very clear parallel to this in the New Testament. The calling of Elisha... The details are very similar to the details of the calling of Jesus' disciples. I mean, Jesus shows up, says, come follow me, and they leave their nets behind and follow him. It's not a picture of surrender. It's a picture of God's electing and calling. Okay? Very different. Because to somebody who's a synergist and a Pelagian like Stephen Furtick, well, they've got to look for the thing that they that uh, the, the person did to obey. 
uh, they that part that they did that then that then somehow activates you know God does His part they do their part and blamma whammo. No, it's this is a very monergistic calling. One day he's plowing, he's working in the fields, he's is in the vocation of farmer, and he receives the direct word of God, and boom, he is changed, and his, the whole course of his life changes forever. And if you think about it then, the same, something similar happens to us. I'm not going to allegorize, but let's roll up here, okay? The word of the Lord does come to us. And when the word of the Lord comes to us, it commands us to repent and to be forgiven and to believe. That's what God's, God's word clearly comes to us, and that's the call of God. And those who are brought to faith and trust in Christ, similar thing. They are raised from the dead, not that Elisha was dead, but you know their lives radically changed. The call of God um, you know, raises them from the dead spiritually. They're reborn, born to new life. They, they're, they will never be the same. So this is not a picture of surrender. This is actually a picture of electing and calling. And so um, – We've got a problem here. We've got a major problem. And on top of it, Elisha, there's nothing sinful or wrong with uh, with the, the farming life that he was doing, nor was there anything sinful and wrong with the fishing life of the apostles. So th- there's, a, there's a parallel here to the calling of the apostles and by extrapolation, a similar way to the way in which God calls us to himself through the preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. But you know, they didn't have to repent of their vocations. They were called then into ministry. But we continue. Sang a song earlier, I have decided to follow Jesus. And we sang two of the verses. And one of the verses that we didn't sing is, I think, the most powerful one in the whole song. And it really corresponds with the message that I'm trying to bring to you today as we launch this series. It says, the world behind me, the cross before me, the world behind me, the cross before me. So you're not being called to follow Elijah today. You're being called to follow one much greater than Elijah. And and Elijah the prophet isn't coming by and dropping his mantle on you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is walking up and down the aisles of these campuses in and out of the rows touching the hearts of people saying that's you you're mindlessly plowing that's you you're stuck that's you you're playing safe that's you so jesus is walking up and down the rows at all of the different campi of uh, elevation church saying that's you your life is stuck you're you're just mindlessly plowing by the way um i gotta point this out again Elisha was not mindlessly plowing. There's nothing in the text that says he was mindlessly plowing and that somehow his life was stuck in a rut. I mean, this is completely out of step with just the historical facts regarding farming. Okay, The plowing portion only occurs during the time when you're preparing the field to receive the seeds that then get sown. When they are sown, the plowing is done and you wait for the crops to grow. And then you harvest them. So, no, Jesus isn't going up and down the road saying, yes, your life is just like Elijah's. You're mindlessly plowing. Again, this is an allegorizing of the text. 
You're numb, numbing yourself to the reality of what I want to do around you, but you're not entering into it. That's you. You're testing the water. You're not stepping in. That's you. That's that issue in your heart I've been talking to you about. And what's going to happen if you just feel that and you go, okay, I want to come out from life behind the plows. I want to be greater. Who doesn't want to be greater? Anybody, anybody not want to be greater? Everybody wants to be greater. And, and, and so many people have launched out to be greater, and yet there's no change. And yet we're still the same. And so now we're back in a life that's just good enough wondering what went wrong. And I would suggest that the reason many people never exit out of spiritual mediocrity and advance into greater things is because we picked the wrong starting point. The greater life that God is calling you to doesn't start with you building a, a, a dream house or drawing up blueprints for the life you want. It begins with you burning the plows of the life that you've lived. Can't get a stop there. Wrong starting point. Okay. Stephen has falsely identified the starting point of Elisha's ministry. The starting point was not, it was not, it was not his burning of the plows. The starting point of Elisha's ministry was when he received the direct word of God from the prophet Elijah, okay, when the mantle was put on him. That is when everything changed. The call was there. He was elected, called, set apart, and he received that directly from the prophet Elijah. Thus begins the prophet, you know, the basically the, the ministry of the prophet Elisha. Since he is no longer in the vocation of farmer, the next thing is, well, I won't need these anymore, and he acts in accordance with that. This is not a surrender. This is an acknowledgment of the call of God, and the call of God is first. So Stephen here has misidentified the first important thing in the um, ministry of the uh, prophet Elisha, and that is the clear, objective calling and election of God. And offering yourself to God as a blank plot of ground saying... Offering yourself to God. Elisha had already received the call before he did anything. He didn't need to offer himself. The, in fact, the burning of the farm equipment... And the killing of the oxen had nothing to do with offering himself to God. I will follow you wherever you lead, the world behind me, and the cross before me. And many people never get to greater because we don't leave good enough behind. And so we step out from behind the plows and we try to live for God a little bit. But while we're singing the world behind me, the cross before me, what we're not singing is the world isn't very far behind us because we've got our hand right there on the back door. And if it gets a little bit tough and if it gets a little bit sacrificial and if it gets a little bit uncertain to follow Jesus forward, I go right back to the world, right back to the plow. But God didn't bring you here so you could. But there was nothing sinful in being a farmer. That's a perfectly legitimate and godly vocation. Go right back into the same way that you were living before you came. Today we're going to burn some plows in our hearts. Great, you're going to burn some plows. Are you going are you going to cook some bread over dung? Are you are you going to eat some locusts and honey? Will you be wearing some camel hair? Will you be marrying some prostitutes?
see, it doesn't make any sense. He, he said, we're going to burn some plows. What plows are you going to burn? And where, on, where in the biblical text are we commanded to burn plows? We're not. And in our lives and in our affection. Cue sappy music. Hang on one second, Eric. I want to tell the people a story before we close. The third thing I want to talk to you about is the invitation to greater things. Greater things. Shout it out, greater things. Greater things. Elisha went on to do twice as many miracles as Elijah did. Elisha went on to raise people from the dead. Changed the economy of an entire city with one word from his mouth. We'll talk about those things in the weeks to come. But it started with deeper surrender. God is the only one. No, it didn't. It did not start with deeper surrender. It call, it began with the electing and calling of God. That's what it began with. Who will call you higher and tell you that the way to get there is by going deeper into your dependence on him. Jesus is the only one who said, anyone who doesn't take up his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that God isn't going to love you until you get rid of this one sin. Or God isn't going to love you until you take this one step of faith. It just means that your life is going to continue to be limited until you set fire to whatever has tethered you to your old life. Hmm. Yet, Elisha's life wasn't limited. It wasn't. And he received the electing call of God from the prophet Elijah. His vocation changed, and his actions you know, basically demonstrate that he believed the word of God. That's what that shows. It shows that Elisha trusted, believed, had faith in Yahweh and his calling. And the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Elijah. And yet, what is Stephen Furtick doing here? Moralizing this and somehow making it so that Elisha's burning of the plow is the activating ingredient on the greater calling in his life. And it's not. The the change in vocation, it was activated by the word of the Lord spoken by the prophet Elijah. He was called before he burned any plows. The mantle had already fallen on Elisha before any plows were burned. This is a complete moralizing and legalizing of this text. And I know what I'm talking about because, you know, like as somebody who had a great mom and a great family and grew up in church. And now we're going to get a story about whom? Stephen Furtick. I thought I knew what it meant to belong to God and be a Christian and wear a cross. There was a moment in my life where the mantle hit my shoulders. Uh, What? Really? A a mantle hit your shoulders? Hmm. Notice now, Stephen Furtick is now on par with the prophet Elisha. And I sense this calling. Couldn't have explained it at the time. It sounds subjective. So prof- Elisha's calling wasn't subjective. It was objective. Found, when I say it to you now, 
But at the time, it was just an impression, an interruption that became God's invitation. That even though the life I was living was pretty good, God was calling me to an impact that was greater. And so I had this tension of my love for music. I, ever since I was really even too young to play an instrument, in my mind, I've always, I've always had a band. <laughs> even before I had any friends who could play instruments, I would gather groups of people and I would tell them what instrument they played in our imaginary band and I'd make imaginary CD covers with imaginary track listings and I wanted to be... And imaginary mantles and imaginary plows and imaginary... You get what I'm saying? He goes on to tell the story of how he, you know, just like the prophet Elisha, burned his plows. What was his plow, by the way? All of his CD collection that he had collected because he wanted to be a rock and roll star in a band. So he had a ceremony where he burned all of those CDs. That was his way of burning his plow. And see, he's just like the prophet. So what's your plow that you are burning? What, what's the plow that God wants you to burn in your life? Um, and to which I would ask, and, and what's the locust that God wants you to eat? And, and what will he help you to swallow it with? What honey will he give you to help you swallow that locust? What prostitute does God want you to marry? What, <laughs> what bread does God want you to bake over dung? You see, this is a complete allegorizing of the text and a missing of the point. And who gets the credit in Stephen Furtick's mishandling of the text? Well, the prophet Elisha does by having greater surrender. His greater obedience means that it's the prophet Elisha who gets the, the well, the glory. Who gets the, the glory in the, the retelling of, the, of narcissistically of the story of Elisha the way Stephen Furtick does in comparing his own life and himself to the prophet Elisha? Well, Stephen Furtick does. See, Stephen Furtick, just like the prophet Elisha, he surrendered deeply and burned his plow too. So who gets the glory? Not God. Not God. No. God's just the one who who wants to coach you to greater, but it's all up to your obedience and surrender to to earn that. And that's what's going on here. This is greater by works, not greater by grace as a gift. And yet... When you look carefully and pay attention to the details of the story, number one, you can't allegorize it. Number two, the calling of God was there before even the remotest of obedience was there to the call, which means it wasn't dependent upon the person, but dependent upon the God who elects, the God who calls, the God who commands, the God who spoke the world into existence is the one who speaks to us repentance and faith and trust in him. Ugh. So that's what's going on with Stephen Furtick's greater sermon series in the burning of the plows. And you now understand what the primary hermeneutical problem is. So if somebody asks you, if you know a friend, and they're telling you about the greater book, and they say, yeah, you know, I'm really learning how to burn my plows, ask them, have they married their prostitute yet? Have they eaten their locusts? Have they cooked their bread over dung yet? And then help them understand that this is no way to read the scriptures, and it misses God's faithfulness, God's electing, and God's calling. 
All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Sermon review when we come back. Weird. It's going to be a sermon on the movie The Avengers, and it's going to be a divisive sermon about unity. Strange. Yeah. Stay tuned for details. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm Right. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith today's sermon comes to us via city of life church kissimmee florida jeffrey smith presiding the name of the sermon is at the movies it's one of those movie sermons um and it's uh, the avengers now like i've been saying i consider this to be a divisive sermon about unity now this requires you to listen carefully, and the reason why I'm saying that is, is because there is a biblical basis for unity, and there are biblical bases for division, okay? Simply saying 
that we must have a spirit of unity is actually divisive. If you're going to teach the biblical doctrine regarding unity and when it is time to divide, you must teach the full counsel of the Word of God. It is not enough to take a passage out of context, which Jeff is going to do here, and basically ramrod and shove down people's throat the concept of unity and saying, you've got to have a spirit of unity, <clears throat> which is what he's going to do. Now, at some point in the sermon, he will recognize that we have to be united around the faith. The problem is, is that he doesn't properly define his terms. He's not letting scripture define the doctrine of unity, nor is he even, even on the radar the concept of when it is that we are to divide. So I'll correct that along the way with biblical text, and you'll see what I'm saying. So it's not as if the sermon has no value. It's just that it's convoluted. And so by misteaching the doctrine of unity, Jeff Smith ends up being divisive. That's kind of the point. So let me kill the music. Without any further ado, here's at the movies, The Avengers and Pastor Jeffrey Smith. Here we go. Well, hey, we're in a series called At the Movies, and uh, we have kind of had a couple things that have come up the, the last few weeks that, that we needed to tend to. Uh, last week, we had our prayer vigil for uh, the situation in Colorado, and it was a great time uh, together just praying for that community and praying for our nation. Today, we're going to get back on track a little bit with our series. And if you're a guest, I just want to welcome you and say hello. Uh, thank you for visiting with us today at City of Life. Uh, this has been an incredible summer so far. We have just seen the momentum just continuing to go forward. This does not look like a summer crowd. Can I get an amen from somebody around here? This looks like a, this looks like a fall type of crowd at church. So we're excited about what God is doing. But today, we're going to talk a little bit about this uh, this concept in the movie, The Avengers. And if you're, if you're here today and you're visiting, you're like, why are they talking about movies? During the summertime, what my team will do is uh, we get together in the fall and plan out our series for the year. And there are certain subjects that we like to hit on uh, throughout the year. So, for instance, a couple of weeks ago, we wanted to talk about love. We wanted to talk about relationships. Uh, so we chose the movie The Notebook to add to our At The Movie series so we oh. could show clips. I am so making you turn in your man card. Oh, serious? You did a sermon on the notebook. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm <clears throat> having a testosterone moment there. ...from the notebook and then get into relationships. One of the subjects that we really feel strong about that we want to talk about is the subject of unity. So today we're looking at the movie The Avengers. Just out of curiosity, how many people have seen The Avengers? Raise your hand if you've already seen the movie. I haven't seen it. That's not surprising that so many of you have seen it because The Avengers just came out this summer. It's already the third highest grossing film in the history of movies. Uh, think of any movie that you've ever seen other than Avatar and Titanic, and it's made more money worldwide than any other movie. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, popularity behind this movie. And one of the reasons I think it's so big is because the concept of the movie really is about all of these different superheroes that have had their own story and have had their own franchises and are great heroes in their own right. You've got Thor, you've got Iron Man, you've got Captain America, uh, the Hulk. They've, they've each had their own movies. The, the, the false Norse god Thor. Right. Yeah, the demon. Right. The concept of this movie is that they're all brought together 
uh, to conquer this huge enemy that could not be conquered unless they were all working together. So today, if you think about that as a church and you think about that as the body of Christ, the concept of unity, I want to read you a quote from the movie, this guy, Nick Fury, who runs the Avengers initiative thing where he's trying to bring these superheroes together. He says this, he says, there was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people. Look at someone next to you say, you're truly remarkable. Uh, (laughs) Wow. So I'm a superhero. Who knew? Come on, look at the person on the other side. Don't let leave them left out. Say, you're truly remarkable. Some of you just said that to a stranger. Uh, There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people so when we needed them, they could fight the battles that we never could. The Earth's greatest heroes in this movie unite to fight an enemy that they would never be able to defeat on their own. If you've never seen a clip from the Avengers, I'm about to show you a quick clip from the movie The Avengers. Check it out. So we're not in God's Word. We're in the movie The Avengers. This is what this sermon begins with. War has started. We are hopelessly outgunned. Director Fury, I think it's time. You're here with the mission, sir? Trying to get me back in the world? Trying to save it. Doctor, I need you to come in. What if I say no? I'll persuade you. Asking me to do. It's called the Avengers Initiative. I thought I didn't qualify. Apparently, I'm, what is it, volatile, self obsessed, and don't play well with others. I think you need a timeout. Creatures defend you. You have made me very desperate. We're not a team. We're a time bomb. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. (laughs) So the idea behind this movie is really a, a group of remarkable individuals that come together to accomplish something together that they can never accomplish separately. 
I want you to be inspired today by that that idea from a movie that we're taking this idea that people separate. So you want me to be inspired by an idea from a movie during church? Mm-hmm. We can only accomplish so much, but think about what we can do as the body of Christ when we come together. It's so important, friends, for us to come together in every possible way as a local church and as a community to be on the same page about things. I mean, how many people believe that we're at a very pivotal moment right now in America's history? I believe that we're at a very pivotal moment in America's history. We're seeing regularly Christianity being absolutely bombarded and attacked from every direction. Our beliefs are being attacked. Not just our beliefs, but we personally are being attacked. And what, what's going to happen through these attacks, through people coming against the Bible, through people coming against our faith, through people coming against organized religion, what it's going to do is it's going to split the body of Christ up if we do not deliberately come together. That's why today we want to look at this passage of scripture, John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. Wave your Bible in the air if you've got it. Wave your cell phone in the air if you're reading your Bible on your cell phone. Amen. You're scaring the devil when you do that. Uh, We're going to read this together. My prayer, verse 20, this is Jesus talking to the Father. So he's talking uh, to God and he's mentioning you. He's mentioning him. He's mentioning the world. So imagine Jesus talking to God saying this. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be what? That all of them may be one. Then he says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Okay, now I'm going to point something out here. It's odd that he is keying in on just a small segment of this high priestly prayer of Jesus. Okay, If you look just a little bit further back in the context, it's there's something important going on here. I'll start at verse 15 to point this out. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, this sets a broader context here. Jesus makes it clear that the ones he is sending are in the world, but not of the world, and he prays that they would be kept from the evil one, and that they be sanctified in the truth. God's word is truth. And again, reiterates that they may be sanctified in in the truth, and this is not just for the, the, the disciples, but for those who will believe in Christ through their word, that they would be sanctified in the truth. 
Okay. Now, this is an important piece of this, and here's the reason why. is because Jesus himself, as well as the apostles, warn us about false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, false Christs, false messiahs, and those who twist God's word and do not abide by sound doctrine. Okay, The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, goes so far as to say in Galatians chapter 1 that those who preach a gospel other than the one that he preached, let them be eternally damned. You know, anathema, that's what that means. Okay, So here's the idea. Unity is important in the body of Christ, but it's not unity for the sake of unity. It is unity in the word of truth, unity in the gospel, unity with sound doctrine, unity around the right handling, right teaching, right proclamation of the biblical gospel, the true Jesus, not unity for the sake of unity despite what anybody else might believe. Because Christ prays, Lord, sanctify them in the truth. So we do not have unity with those who do not abide by the truth, who preach a false Christ and a false gospel and and twist and mangle God's word. That's the implication of what Jesus is praying. But he's avoided that in his selected text for this sermon on a movie. I in them and you in me, listen to this, so that they may be brought to complete what? Complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. When? When they are in complete unity. In the truth. That's what the fuller context says in the verses just before this. What it's saying is that our unity together, our unity in Christ, our unity as friends, our unity in our family structure, our unity corporately as a church, our... No, our unity of message, unity of gospel, unity of doctrine, unity of truth. Lord, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. See, here's the thing. The reason why this sermon on unity is divisive is because it's not teaching unity on God's terms, but unity on different terms. Unity as the body of Christ is going to be the testimony that wins over people to Christ from the world. When they see us together, when they see our friends... No, 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 no. That's not what wins people over. What wins people is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. Friendships, when they see us being on the same page, not contradicting one another, what this scripture is saying is that is the testimony that will cause people to want to become saved when they see people in unity. Let's pray together. That's not what this text is saying. And I hate to contradict you here, Pastor, but you just drew an inference from this text that cannot be supported from it when you read it in context. Together today. Father, we thank you for your great love here today. Uh, thank you for the song that we were singing earlier that says your love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on me. 
God, I'm in that category of people that need your endless love in my life. I know there's so many other people here today that maybe you're in this room that, that are just feeling guilty, God, over sin in their life or feeling guilty over things that they've done in their past. I thank you today that your great love never runs out for us today. I thank you that every person in this room has a destiny and a purpose in their life, God. I thank you so much, Lord, for your... Notice in his, in his prayer regarding those who've committed sin, just, just that God's great love for you doesn't run out. Um, it takes a crucified and risen Savior for our sins to be forgiven. And now we thank God for our purpose in life. What's, what are you talking about? sacrifice of your son Jesus today for every person in this room. I thank you, God, today that you want to revolutionize hearts today. You want to turn hearts around and revolutionize people's lives today. Lord, you want to bring hope to people that have lost hope today. Lord, it's our prayer today that as we receive the holy word of God, that our hearts would be open and our hearts would be changed and turned by the power of your great love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. How many people enjoy kindergarten? Did anybody, anyone else like kindergarten? Wasn't kindergarten fun? I mean, kindergarten is fun because the first hour of kindergarten is cubbyhole time. I mean, you got to love something when you spend an hour, you know, taking your boots off and, and, and putting, taking your coat off. And then, you know, we lived up in Tennessee when it was really cold and I had one of those cheap zip up Walmart, you know, like, like Kmart, excuse me. Remember Kmart? Y'all remember Kmart? It was like a one piece thing where the zipper started up here and you had to pull it all the way down. And, uh, you know, it just took forever to get it off. But I mean, I love, uh, kindergarten so much cause you've got, you've got cubby hole time. You've got snack time. How many people think that at your job, they should bring back cookies and juice time? Don't you think that'd be fun if in your job, if you had a cookie and juice break? That'd be a great thing. You, you got, you got uh, play time. You've got nap time. How many people think we should vote on bringing nap time back? They do that in Argentina. Straight up, man. You can't get nothing to eat. Like at like 1 o'clock, they're like, oh, we take a nap. I mean, they're just like straight. They just go for it. That sounded Chinese. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. But they, they, they literally have like a siesta type thing. Like businesses close down so people can take naps. But, you know, I was thinking about kindergarten. And I was thinking about one of the you know basic things about kindergarten is, is when you get your grades, when you get your report card, it's not the normal report card. Uh, you have different types of grades that they give you, but, but like one of the, one of the categories on your report card is talking. Anybody remember that talking? I always used to get a really bad grade in talking. I can't remember what it was, but, but one of the, one of the grades in kindergarten is, kindergarten is, uh, works well and gets along with others. Do you remember that works well and gets along with others? And I think it's interesting to me that that's a fundamental principle in life that we even get a grade on when we're a little kid. But yet when we grow up and even especially when we become a part of God's family, sometimes we give very little thought to how well we work with people and how well we get along with people. And I think when we read this scripture... We, we began to understand a little bit that it's God's plan for us to work well with others. It's God's plan for us to get along with people. 
to try to find the good in situations instead of constantly trying to nitpick to find out what's wrong with a situation. As Christians, we are called to have a spirit of unity. Look, the text doesn't say that, that we're called to have a, quote, spirit of unity. And what's very interesting is that your definition of unity is very divisive. Get the person next to you and say, I want to have a spirit of unity. Unity is the state of being one. It's harmony among the parts or elements of a work producing a single major effect. Unity is actually an attribute of God himself. The three of the Trinity are one together. One scripture in the Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. God is one God, although there are separate parts of his triune being. Persons, you're, you need to spend a little bit more time being very careful about how you're describing God and make sure you do it biblically so you don't end up in a you know, basically a, a, a heresy regarding the nature of God himself. They are all three one. There is a unity. Jesus doesn't do something that the Father doesn't want. The Holy Spirit doesn't go out and do his own thing and come back and say, sorry, I was just in this kind of mood. No, they're all on the same page together. That's why Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's what a spirit of unity does is it prefers the team, it prefers, uh, it prefers a group over itself. Here's a good example. What? Unity prefers a group over itself. What are you talking about? That's ridiculous. That's not what this text is saying. Example, a good analogy of what true unity is like. Um, Pastor Amy and I had the opportunity one time on a... Pastor Amy? Um, there's no such thing as a female pastor. God's word forbids that. Okay, that being the case, what's the ground of unity that you and I would have, Jeff? You are not abiding by God's word, which is true. You're changing it and obfuscating it and not abiding by it. A date to go to a beautiful concert, and it was a symphony. In, a, in an orchestra. And when we heard the orchestra, it was actually James Taylor was playing with, with a massive orchestra. So he's out in front and there were certain songs that they would... Anybody like James Taylor? But I mean, you've got to be a little bit... you got to be like at least 40. Oh, you, yeah, that's right. You, well, you, okay, you're right. I'll give that to you. You ain't 40. So the thing about the, the orchestra that's beautiful is you've got all these instruments, you know, 60, 70, 80 instruments. And all of a sudden, you, you, you begin to hear the, the bass notes begin. And then all of a sudden, you hear the cellos, and then the violins, and then the woodwinds 
come in. Then you can hear the, the French horn start and, and the timpani starts to rumble. Then you hear the, the chimes and all these separate, completely different instruments begin to come together and this surreal oneness begins to take place. You begin to hear different layers of harmony and different melodies on top of each other. And all these single individual instruments come together to produce this beautiful sound that one instrument could never create on its own. I want to point something out here. Let's use your metaphor there for a minute, Jeff. An orchestra is all playing off of the same score, the same piece of music. An orchestra is not united um, for the sake of unity or just because they have a spirit of unity. They're united around the piece of music that they are playing. And it wouldn't work if, for instance, you know, you went to, you know, uh, an expensive night at the orchestra and you heard, you know, like the, the London Symphony or, you know, some group like that. And one you know, part of the symphony was playing uh, Mozart Symphony Number no. Forty, while the other portion, the other part, at the same time was playing Tchaikovsky's eighteen twelve overture. It wouldn't work. They, they would be conflicting. The reason why the orchestra is united is because they're all playing off the same page, if you would. Okay. So the idea here is is that if we're going to talk about unity in the body of Christ, we need to be united. In sound doctrine, we need to be united in what God's word says. We need to be united around the biblical gospel. The you understand what I'm saying? That's the idea here. Otherwise, we're playing different pieces of music, and the and no spirit of unity can overcome the fact that we're not playing the same piece of music. Got it? We continue. Imagine if each person in this room was an instrument. Can you imagine if each person in this room is an instrument, and you are? that is supposed to be playing a certain melody so that as a body corporately together, we're supposed to make this beautiful sound together. I mean, we've got a lot of different types of instruments in this room. Can I get an amen from somebody? We've got a lot of white instruments. We've got a lot of New Yorican instruments. We've got black instruments. You've got, you've got Islanders. You've got old. You've got young. You've got every kind of imaginable different sound. And what I'm trying to tell you today through this scripture is that Jesus is showing us the importance of trying to be on the same page. You know, we could go in the lobby after service is over. And find a million reasons not to like each other. Uh, you know, there could, there's probably people here right now that are going, I'm not listening to anything he has to say. He got a hole in his jeans. He got a hole in his jeans. Couldn't he find some jeans to wear without a hole in them? Well, I mean, at least I got a tie on. I mean, give me a break. I mean, there's got to be a little balance going on somewhere. No, but seriously, there are things that you can find about anyone that you don't like. You know, I've, I, I made a statement on Twitter not long ago, and then people just started just kind of attacking. They, they love that. Uh, I, I made a statement, and I said, you don't have to agree with everything in a local church to be a functional part of the church. And it's a true statement. You might not like it, but it's true. You don't have to agree about everything. People are like, oh, yeah, well, if you're reading your Bible, then you're going to agree. No, no, no. How many people are married here today? Uh, how many people disagree with certain things your spouse has done in the history of your marriage? But how many people still love your spouse? Okay. In the same way, 
<laughs> you don't have to raise your hand higher when I ask that. that. Married? Disagree? <laughs> you still can love the person because the key is alignment. You can be aligned without always agreeing about everything. Okay, let me read to you from Scripture. Second John. Okay, Second John only has one chapter. Um, verse 6 is where I'll start. Okay? And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. And this is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world those who do not confess the coming of Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house, that would be the church, or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Hmm, it sounds like the Apostle John didn't have a spirit of unity when it came to those who ran ahead and didn't abide in the apostolic teaching and abide by the Word of God. You see what I'm saying here? The Bible has a very different definition regarding unity than what Jeff here is saying. Jeff has a very completely different idea of unity because he's giving plausible-sounding human arguments, not the biblical definition of who we are to unite with and who we are to not unite with. You can be aligned and still be on the same page as the body of Christ. We need to be aligned under Christ. What purpose does it serve to meet a Christian? And the moment you meet him, you go, what's up? You're a Christian. Do you speak in tongues? I don't want to be friends with you. No, 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 no. What are you doing there? You're finding the most base thing that you can possibly think of to divide you. That would be doctrine. Uh huh. Rather than to find the commonality that you share together, which is Jesus. Which Jesus? See, that's the question. If you have false doctrine, you're believing and teaching and proclaiming, which Jesus are you teaching to? We need to begin to unify under what we have in common rather than to point out all the differences that we have. It's important. Notice the differences he's saying that we need to stop dividing over are doctrinal differences. But the scripture says the exact opposite of what he's teaching. In our local church to do the same thing as a group. There's a lot of different people here that are from all kinds of different backgrounds. For instance, raise your hand if you grew up Catholic. Raise your hand if you grew up Catholic. That's nearly 50% of the church. So, so if, if, if you begin to, to look and say, well, I just really don't, I'm not comfortable being around with people that are, that are formerly Catholic. I'm not comfortable with Baptists. I'm not comfortable with Presbyterians. I'm not comfortable with this. I'm not. Then what you're going to do is you're going to live your whole life searching for things that you disagree with rather than trying to find the kind of unity 
that the Bible teaches about. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, it says, Just as the body, though one, has many different parts, but all its many parts form one body, it is so with Christ. Now, that's not talking about one body of people who just profess to know Jesus and willy-nilly believe whatever they want and will not be bound or abide by sound biblical doctrine, the biblical gospel, or otherwise. Rome, the you know, Roman Catholicism, has anathematized the biblical gospel. So what about them can I unite with? Just because they confess Jesus? Um, what does their Jesus do for me? He doesn't save me. I've got to do that in combination with him, right? That's a different gospel and a different Jesus. Many different elements that form the same body. Okay, so the question is, why is unity important to God? I think we read in that scripture, Jesus explained it. Unity between believers is a testimony to the world of the unity and love that is in God. It's important for us to remember that we're being a testimony to the world when we show unity. So, for instance, when issues are going on in our society, in our culture, and a non-Christian says, well, what do you think? And you say, well, I, I don't really know. I don't really get involved in things like that. Well, see, that's not showing unity in, in the body of Christ. That's not showing unity. We need to begin to celebrate who we are. We need to begin to celebrate what we believe. We need to begin to champion our faith and to come together as believers and to know what it is that we believe and to agree with one another about the, mo- the things that are most important in our lives. You know, unity... Uh, Another great reason that unity is important to God is unity produces maturity. How many people want to be mature in Christ? Uh, The Bible... Really, God's word doesn't produce maturity. It's unity that does so. Really, what verse does that come from? It says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that uh, ma- unity is not the agency of maturity it's the end product of it and we are to be united in the truth and sound doctrine and not not be united with those who teach falsely that is christ from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. There's many different parts to the functional body of Christ. If we're constantly looking for something negative, if we're constantly championing what we disagree with, we're never going to be great. I would like to tell you today, great people, not just average people, but great people are known because of what they are for, not what they are against. Great people are known because of what they are for. By the way, that's just a plausible-sounding philosophical bumper sticker. It's not taught in Scripture. Not what they are against. Sometimes people will send me links to blogs and give me books that people have written, and the whole book is about something that they're against, and I'm not that interested in reading a book or reading a blog about what someone is against. If, if, if what you're for is powerful enough then you're going to understand what you're against because of what you are for. So we need to learn how to find commonality in things instead of searching for everything 
that we're against. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I'd like you to go through this yourself. I'm giving you a little homework assignment. Take this home today and study each thing. Each time it says one, find out what it says. And I want you to study that today to think about ways that we can meditate on how to find unity in our relationships, in our families, in our church, in our community. So I'm going to read this to you right now. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Look at the person next to you and say, I'm the humblest person you'll ever meet. (laughs) Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. A guy actually introduced himself to me and my dad that way. That's why I'm making that joke. It's a funny, funny way to introduce yourself. Be patient, bearing with one another, bearing with one another in love. How many people know we have to, we have to bear with each other? We have to give some people time to be a jerk sometimes. Can I get an amen? I was being a jerk to my wife last night. I'm being honest with you. We had a situation and I was just pouting. Is is there anyone here that will admit that you pout sometimes? Okay. I was pouting. But do you know what she did? She, She was bearing with me in love. She was being sweet to me even though I was not using a good attitude. She was being, and you know what happened? Her sweetness won me over and I apologized. I said, I'm, come on, I think she deserves a big hand for that. Not, not my apology, her sweet, <laughs> her sweetness won me over. We have to bear with each other because I'm going to tell you something. You are going to be a jerk. There's someone looking at me like this. You are going to be a jerk at some point. You are going to be a jerk. And do you want someone to bear with you through your jerkiness? Then we need to bear with others in love. We need to love each other. We need to to love each other as the body of Christ. There's going to be differences. We have to remember that word alignment. We have to be aligned for the same purpose. We're aligned because of Christ. We don't have to agree about everything. I met someone the other day that was so passionate about tattoos and not ever getting a tattoo. They had a tattoo and they were deeply regretting getting the tattoo. And they were just telling me that, you know, you got to tell people never to get tattoos. You got to make sure that you, 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 you tell people, well, that's okay for that person to feel that way because they, per, they have personal experience with it. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to go tell everyone else not to do it because that's not my position to go tell everyone what they should and should not do. But if someone, if he's going to cause someone else who gets a tattoo, if he's going to cause that to be a division in their relationship because they went and did that, now what this person is doing is taking a personal issue that they feel strongly about for their own life, they're putting it on another Christian, and because that Christian has done something that offends them, they're breaking off relationship because this person is choosing to focus on one particular issue of disagreement rather than being aligned with someone because of Christ. So what we need to do as Christians is we need to make sure that we're aligned for the right purposes. There's all kinds of different belief systems within Christianity.
This is the important part. True Christianity, where people believe that Jesus is our one true Savior, that, that He is the everlasting God, that there's no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved. I'm talking about people that are actually saved. Even within Christianity, true Christians, there's so many different camps. What we need to be careful of is that we don't get the attitude of writing off entire groups of people because they don't believe exactly the way we believe. We need to have the spirit of unity that the Bible is talking about here. So he says, be humble, gentle, bearing with one another in love. Just don't write off entire groups, you know. Boy, um, just because they don't believe the way you do. So it doesn't matter what they believe because that's their belief and this is that, you know, kind of truth just doesn't kind of, you know, ascend above a particular group, does it? Let's uh, take a look at Jesus' half-brother, Jude. Jude, verse 3. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, that would be the positive thing, I found it necessary to write to you, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. Who long ago were designated for this condemnation? They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, Although you once fully knew it, the Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in a like manner, these people, also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds who feed only themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh of Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain an advantage." You think Jude wanted us to be united with them in a spirit of unity? I'm just, you know, asking. I mean, these are people who believe in Jesus, right? Making every effort, every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. How much effort? How much effort? Every possible effort. Effort 
Do you know wisdom will teach you when to speak and when to shut up? Maturity and wisdom will teach you when to speak and when to shut up. Many times we cause so much unrest in our relationships because someone says something that we know we disagree with and we know that maybe even what they said is wrong. Maybe they even said something that's not even factual and we just feel like it's our responsibility to correct them. We feel like it is our responsibility because we know the facts. So they need to be enlightened with my knowledge. But I guess you can relate. Most of the time, wisdom teaches us this is not the right time to bring this up. Wisdom and maturity, when we're trying to keep unity, we're trying to keep unity, we're trying to keep peace. We're loving people. We're loving people in Christianity. When you invite someone over for dinner, and, and you, you don't know them very well. And they come out and say, well, I can't wait, you know, for the election. I'm voting for so-and-so. And I mean, and you look at your spouse and go, oh, it's time to go. No, 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 no. That's not the spirit of unity. That's not the spirit of unity. And as a matter of fact, that might not even be the right time to discuss that particular issue. It might be the time to focus on the things that you do. I mean, literally, that might be the time to say, boy, you know, it sure was a great message on Sunday. I love Jesus. How about you? You know, (laughs) I mean, there are certain times that when you're trying to keep the spirit of unity, you say, well, I I don't want to become a wimp. I'm not afraid of confrontation. It's not about being afraid of confrontation. It's about really working our hardest as Christians to keep unity in every possible situation. I don't doubt that you're smart. I don't doubt that you probably know the right answer most of the time. When everyone else is wrong, you've got it figured out and you could put everyone in their place. I don't doubt that. I'm sure you're very, very smart. But the, what? No, no, I'm, I really mean that. I, I'm saying I, I'm, I'm sure that you... you uh, and my mom threw me off there. I, I'm sure you could, you could definitely bring light to in any particular situation. But the, at the end of the day is how much unity are you bringing into the moment? Hmm. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit from Titus chapter 1, talking about the um, qualifications... Of a pastor, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of a Cre- uh, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. Well, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Does this... Uh, th- Paul sounds like he's diametrically opposed to what Jeff here is preaching. And yet, Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Like I said, this is a divisive sermon on unity. The end result is, hey, if someone's teaching differently and teaching false doctrine, the more important thing for you to do but to be wise is to keep in mind that unity is the important thing. How much peace are you bringing into the situation? So this, this scripture says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. 
Uh, verse 4 says there, this is what I want you to study. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. Right. But see, the thing is, that's the thing about heretics. They don't teach the same Lord. They have a different Lord. Biblical Christians have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. But the thing about heresy is they teach another Jesus, another gospel, and false doctrine. So we're not united with them. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. One God and one Father. Hey, those are the seven things I want you to look at. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. We need to begin to meditate on those things. As a church locally, when it says one body, this is the church that God has given us. It may not be perfect. There, there are definitely things that you will find if you attend here for a long period of time. You can say, I don't like the way this is done. I'm, I don't like the way this person treated me. Someone didn't smile at me in the lobby. I'm leaving. You know, I mean, there, there's all kinds of things that you can find in a church. And, and to be honest with you, if you're going to base where you go to church on whether or not you're offended, you better buy yourself a really good set of luggage because you're going to be moving around a lot in your life. You're going to find offenses wherever you go. But if you're going to base... Yeah, that's weird. Um, the reason I say that is, um, I mean, from the point of view of seeker-driven pastors, I'm probably the most critical person on the planet. And yet, I don't hop around from church to church to church to church. Okay? In fact, I can only think of one congregation that I have left for reasons where I found myself at odds with the pastor. Okay? And the reality is, is that every church that I've gone to, with the exception of one, um, have been congregations that I have literally just loved. I mean, going back to... Uh, Pastor Swirla's church, Holy Trinity in, in, uh, in Hacienda Heights. Why did I stop going there? I moved. I needed to find a local congregation. I found a local congregation, First Lutheran in, uh, Lake, Elsinore Congre in Lake Elsinore, California. Loved it there. Fantastic pastor, Pastor Colander. L left there because I moved. I moved to, um, well, I, I moved to, uh, San Juan, Cal uh, to, to San Clemente. Went to Faith Lutheran. And what's the reason I left there? I moved to Indiana. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this what this guy's saying is not true. Absolutely not true. Okay? And the reason is this. Because if you're attending a congregation where the pastor is doing his job, preaching the word, proclaiming Christ, administering the Lord's Supper, baptizing, teaching and he's rightly handling God's word, you are, you're going to have to look long and hard to find something wrong with that church. And I mean that. You, are, you almost have to look like with worldly vanity to find it. It's your church on Christ. 
you're going to base your church on Christ, you're constantly going to be searching to find things that edify you, to find things that encourage you. Let's celebrate our local church. Let's celebrate being at City of Life. This is the church that God has given us. Let's plant our roots deep here. Let's talk, you know, let's talk highly about the church. That's why when we, you know, open up the service, uh, you know, we have messages. Get out your phones. You can get on Facebook. You can get on Twitter during the service. You can say, you know, at City of Life today, God is ministering. God is doing great things. Come find out where hope lives. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm inviting you to come to church. We can celebrate. And not only can, we should celebrate our local church because what we're doing is we're celebrating the body of Christ as a whole. That unity should start in our families. It should start in our families. It should extend to our relationships. It should go to our workplace. Then it should go to our local church and to our community. So one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord. Can I tell you today, we need to come together and celebrate the fact that there is only salvation in the name of Jesus and Jesus alone. Salvation comes by no other name. We need to be unified that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That no man comes to God but by Jesus. That's one of the areas that Christians need to be unified unified on. We need to know our stuff. Can I get an amen from somebody? We need to, we, I mean, we don't need to see the, you know, the people walking up to our door on Saturday and start hiding because we're afraid that we don't know how to talk about our faith. We need to be unified to know that we believe Jesus is the only way to salvation. We can't say, well, I really love the Bible, but sometimes I love to read, you know, Mormon literature. I mean, I love The Pearl of Great Price by Joseph Smith. I like that and the Bible too. Now it seems like he's contradicting himself. Mormons say they believe in Jesus, and yet you're dividing with them over doctrine. <laughs> no, the two contradict each other. We can't say... Right, exactly. They contradict each other. What are you going to do with somebody who says they're a Christian and that it doesn't matter what you believe in? You can be saved because everybody's saved in Jesus already, like somebody like Rob Bell. Hmm? I love, you know, the Bible, but I'm also kind of dig, you know, Buddhist stuff every once in a while, too. That's not the way it works. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. We have right, but see, that's the thing. There's different Christian groups who do not teach that. They teach salvation by works, or they teach... Uh, salvation via something different. They teach a different Jesus. We have to celebrate that together. We have to celebrate that we have one faith, one faith, the same unifying faith that brings... Right, but if we have the same faith, then we, we're confessing the same doctrine, right? ...brings us all together, that makes all of these different people come together. Why would all of these diverse kinds of people... We've got rednecks in here, we've got Puerto Ricans, we've got every imaginable socioeconomic group in here, people that have money, people that don't have money. It doesn't matter. We're not here for the, the music, we're not here because of the church, we're here because of Jesus today. He's the one that brings us together. We're here because of our common faith today. We need to have unity in our faith. You know, I want to give you three quick things I would love for you to write down. Uh, the Bible is being attacked right now. It's Yes, and the place where that's happening the most is in the church.
It's being torn to pieces by the media and by by the emergence, by Bible twisters who won't teach it correctly, who allegorize it. By uh, many groups that just have a major agenda to try to cause questions to come about regarding the Bible. One of the things that people are saying is that the Bible cannot be trusted since so much of it we just write off anyways. Uh, You know, for instance, people will say, well, the Bible tells you you can't eat any shellfish. So if it tells you that, then why not write off other things that it says you can't do? Because you're willing to just write that off, so why not just write these other things off? Well, you write off the passages that forbid women from being pastors. For instance, Pastor Amy, your wife, you you are attacking God's Word by denying and basically avoiding uh, being obedient to what it says there. Well, let me, let me just kind of touch on that just really, really quickly. I want to give you three things. Please write these down. Even if you write them on your phone, even if you write them on your spouse's hand and you have to read them later and type them in your computer, just write them down because they're very, very important. Three kinds of law that we find in the Bible. Now, by the way, this summary is pretty accurate. I, he does a decent job here. Three kinds of law. One is called civil law. Two is called ceremonial law. Three is called moral law. Correct. Okay? When people make this statement that we should just write off things that the Bible says, I would like to start out with those three types of law telling you that God's moral law will never be written off in any way. Nothing concerning morality has ever been written off. It is very important for us to know that no matter what the Bible has said about morality and sin, that will never become defunct. Correct. It is always going to be active. The Ten Commandments are exactly as they were written. Even though it was in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments are a principle that works. Tithing is a principle that works. Your, your doctrine of tithing is wrong. Infidelity in the Old Testament, as it, as it was described, is still an abomination to God. All of those things are still intact. There are two other types of law, however, that the shellfish comes under these two types, and many other things come under these types of law. There's civil law that's mentioned in the Old Testament, which has to do with the way the nation was governed. There were lots of laws that were just legal issues of if a person steals something from you, then this is their punishment. If a person slaps you in the face, then this is how you deal with it in court. So the Bible really was, had a lot of things that it was telling people how to deal with civil issues. We live in the United States of America. We have our own civil law in our country. So we must obey our civil law in our country as long as it doesn't contradict what the Bible tells us to do. We're supposed to obey civil law. Okay? Okay. Decent. Okay. Correct. Okay. So all the civil law in the Old Testament that, that specifically dealt with the way Israel was supposed to run, that stuff is not intact right now. Uh, we, we don't use the civil law to override our own civil law. The second area of the Old Testament is ceremonial law. There were many different laws and rituals regarding of the worship of God, the way you had to worship God. You had to go through a high priest. You had to get sacrifices. The sacrifices had to atone for sin. Right. All of those things are now defunct because Jesus fulfilled all of those old laws. So the- Correct. Those old things regarding shellfish and what you eat, what you can't eat, all those old things are no longer valid 
any longer. But we need to be unified under the fact that God's moral law still remains. I think we need to be unified under law and gospel. But yes, God's moral law remains. My question is, uh, the prohibitions against women being pastors, that's New Testament. Want to explain that one? It's completely unchanging. Christians need to stand up together and say, we believe in the Bible. My whole worldview is a biblical worldview. It is a Christian worldview. It is not a Republican worldview. It is not a Democratic worldview. It is not a liberal worldview. It is not a conservative worldview. It is a biblical worldview. Everything I am, everything I think is processed through the Word of God. I don't process the Word of God through my opinions. I process my opinions through the Word of God. Good, then you'll repent and defrock your wife. That's how you gain a biblical worldview in life. Come on, give the Lord a praise if you're going to clap today. We have to have one faith. I'm going to give you three brief things that will cause disunity in the church. Comparing. When you begin to compare yourself to other people, you cause disunity. The disciples one time were having some quarrel about who was going to be sitting next to Jesus. I mean, it seems so petty. It's unbelievable. Like, no, I get to sit next to him. No, I get to sit next to I mean, really, that's what happens is comparing. When you start comparing yourself to other people, that causes a lot of disunity. Unforgiveness will cause disunity. Make sure that you're living life with an open heart, that you're quickly forgiving people that wrong you, that you're working it out quickly and openly with people just talking about things that are uncomfortable. When something happens, just say, hey, I just want to let you know, when you said this, I kind of felt bad about it. I do not want there to be anything between us. Uh, just real quick, I want to tell you, you, you have, if you're going to live that kind of life with an open heart and just, just get through things, you got to be willing for people to mistreat you sometimes uh, because they will. I mean, not long ago, I was talking to a friend that I borrowed a, or I, I lent a, a great amount of money to, and the person never paid me back and th- this, this money. And, and so, I mean, what was happening is every time I was around this person, I would think, why aren't they mentioning the fact that I let them borrow this money? Uh, so I certainly hope he gets to the fact that false doctrine, false teaching, and false practice causes disunity as well. You know what I did? I said, you know, one time I just said, hey, I just want to tell you real quick, that amount of money that you owe me, I, I just want to tell you, for, just don't, let's not worry about that. I do not want that to get in between our friendship in any way because I love you and it's, it's my, our friendship is too valuable. They said, oh, okay, thanks. Hey, did you hear that the magic signed uh, so-and-so? So they just, boom, they, they're just like, okay, but you know what? If you're going to live that kind of life with an open heart, then be willing to just do what you're going to say. It's worth it to keep friendships. It's worth it to keep relationships. So be able to move past those things. Gossip, slander, that kind of stuff causes disunity. Selfishness causes disunity. But you know what promotes unity? Love. Okay, again, why is it that you haven't brought up the fact biblically? Okay, throughout the New Testament, the thing that divides the body of Christ is false teaching. On the one point, on the one hand, you make a point that we all have one faith, and that means we must guard it, and those who teach falsely are the ones who cause disunity. 
Love promotes unity. Whatever that sound is, please turn it off. uh, Love promotes unity. Love honors people. Love is humble. Love seeks wisdom. Uh, Remember, wisdom teaches you when to speak and when to be quiet. Uh, So we have to remember that love is the way to promote unity in everything. And in Mark 3.25, as I close, Jesus said, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Right. That means that if a house divided against itself is one that teaches false doctrine and doctrines of demons claiming to be in the body of Christ. You get what I'm saying here? But I would submit to you today that the opposite of that statement is also true. A house united within itself cannot fall. A house united within itself cannot fall. So let's come together as the body of Christ today. Let's come together as a local church and a local family. Let's come together within our families and let's have each other's backs. You know, at City of Life, we have uh, something called the Dream Team. That's our team of volunteers. And we have an acronym called FUSE. And FUSE stands for Fervency, Unity, service, and excellence. Unity is the second core value of our leadership team, that we don't put one person above the team, that if you're making it about you, 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 then you're not making it about the team, and we need to make sure that we're making it about the team. So let's make sure that we get a spirit of unity in our life, just like this movie, how these separate great heroes came together to accomplish something corporately that they can never accomplish individually in the same way I believe that we should do that as the body of Christ. I want to pray for those people that are here today that maybe need done oh, man. so there you go ripping a verse out of context basically browbeating people about the need for a spirit of unity somehow understanding that we've got to have the same faith but and then like i said a divisive sermon about unity it's not like there wasn't some good points in there it's it problem was is that that was not a coherent in context biblical teaching on what Christ has called us to as far as unity and what the Bible teaches us regarding being united and when it's time to rebuke correct and even divide <sighs> it's frustrating all right we're at the end of another edition of fighting for the faith if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address talk back at fighting for the faith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook it's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter my name there at pirate Christian Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.